there's a lot of different traditions of magic, but the artifice, the idea of the creation, um, especially one that has existed and will exist and we can source into, we can kind of dip, dip our ladle into and kind of drink um, with the awareness and knowledge that we also are corrupting ourselves through that knowledge um, is, is part of many magic traditions. And especially I, not the modern version, but like the traditional version of the Order of the Golden Dawn, which like really was trying to source itself from magical traditions that weren't Judeo-Christian, not Kabbalah-esque uh, and, and whatnot, are, are really fascinating by the sense that, you know, you have a system that is based on on kind of knowledge and study, but also based on intuition and and practical magic rather than just like the kind of hermetic or scholarly versions of that. Um, and so, you know, to also realize the potency and power of what we're doing as as musicians, like when we when we intone, when we make music, like we're in a temple space, we're like making sacred ground underneath us. Like we're, we're doing heavy lifting, but it can really be for stupid reasons. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, editor-in-chief of TheUns.com, Bill's manager and over-caffeinated email answerer. It's good to be back. The podcast is flying off the digital shelves, and we're thankful people stuck around during our long hiatus to put out Bill's latest record, Phantasmagoria. The fun never stops because there's a remix album coming and some pretty incredible acts are on this record, so we're getting real excited. Go listen to it now on your favorite streaming platform, and thanks again for all the support. Today's guest is Alfred Darlington, a.k.a. Daedalus. In addition to being one of the sharpest dressers I've ever met, Daedalus also also has releases on Alpha Pup, Brain Feeder, Ninja Tune, and Dome of Doom, among others. They have remixed Flying Lotus, Local Natives, Amon Tobin, DJ Shadow, Open Mike Eagle, 100 Waters, No Such Thing, STS9, and so many more. This conversation is wide-ranging and fascinating. Darlington is currently part of the Berkeley School of Music faculty, so it's like some highfalutin academia shit right here. If you're a Patreon member, you're getting this show a week early. Thanks again for your support. We, uh, we really appreciate everyone who uh, supports the podcast on the Patreon because that's how we keep the lights on. Mr. Bill is at Infrasound this weekend playing Kill Bill and IDM sets. He's in St. Louis next weekend with two sets as well as part of Nocturnal Noise 2. Halloween weekend, he's performing at Nightmare Festival, Freaky Deaky, and at Pandemonium in L.A., then Wobble Rocks in mid-November with a fuck ton of artists in addition to Ganja White Night. Finally, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore able tenere. This is like office hours with the cool professor. Okay, that's enough of my yapping. Enjoy Bill's chat with Daedalus. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Yeah, so I've just started recording too. All right. Um, yeah, uh, the semester just began. <laughs> of course, phone calls right now. It's a good time. Uh, yeah, uh, semester just began Berkeley, and it's been a whirlwind, super change of life being on the East Coast, coming from Los Angeles, and 
going from being, you know, don't know where the next dollar is going to come from and to having a kind of a job, a jobity job. Yeah. How is some um, Berkeley stuff right now? Uh, like, I mean, you, I assume are teaching electronic music there or, or are you teaching jazz stuff? No, no, electronic music and all, almost all performance classes too. So electronic music performance and technique, oh, that's like that. cool. even though I would love to do more, you know, like production classes and whatnot, but that isn't, they have plenty of that there. Um, and plenty of kind of, yeah, I mean, like I would be so underwater in terms of jazz, even though I have a little bit of that in my back pocket, it's amazing, uh, mm. what they're doing, um, at a high level, like the people they're churning out of the program is, is absolutely insane. Oh, also in the background, you might hear my, my child. That's the other huge part of my life right now. <laughs> it's a kid. Has <laughs> you had a child? The, like I did. I did. That was recent. Yeah. Like they're 10 months old. So. Oh, very, dude, congrats. So that recent. happened like during the pandemic. Right before, if you can imagine the terror oh. of like, oh, wow, we're going to encounter this, like maybe this life thing happening. And then like at the same time as even being like in that kind of like, oh, even discovering that we're having a kid also having the world start to shut down. Mm. Yeah, it made it super bonding with my partner, though. It made it really incredible to have this like very concentrated time. I know you probably can sympathize with like, you know, probably being an individual that toured quite a bit and then going from that to not being on the road as a constant or not having that always be the background noise of every decision is like, Oh, I'm going to be gone this weekend, that weekend, this week, right. that week. And yeah. suddenly, yeah, you have time different. Yeah. I found, I definitely found that to be, yeah, super different, um, change of pace for sure. And I kind of liked it because I always had this, uh, and I mean, I'm starting to get it again. Like I'm starting to fall into that same mind trap again, sort of where, um, I feel like I always have to be sort of writing for shows or preparing for shows Interesting. and it doesn't give me like a, a whole lot of space mentally. I feel like to be truly creative and true, truly do exactly what I want. Um, whereas in the pandemic, I was like, I don't even know if shows are ever going to happen again. You know, like everyone might half the world might just die and you know, shows may or may not be a thing in the future. So I was like, well, I guess I can just make whatever. And just, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a huge amount of freedom afforded, but, did you not have any sus suspicion that we would just pull through? Would we just like the... I mean, I did, but I wasn't sure, right? Like at the very start, do you remember the first like couple of weeks of the pandemic where like even the CDC wasn't sure what's going on and like everyone was not, there was no one was sure what was going on. I mean, the CDC didn't even, weren't even yeah, sure no. if like wearing masks was correct. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it did seem that kind of that brief, bright moment of both that kind of endless optimism of like, oh, this is just a bad flu. We're just going to get through it. It's not going to be nothing. Um, you know, maybe we're going to wear, maybe we're going to do some things like what would happen around a, a SARS type situation that, mm. you know, I think those of us who have toured, we kind of maybe have some insight into what it's like, what was like in, in Asia, Southeast Asia at that time um, of, of swine flu or SARS or these other like permutations of like what could have been a global pandemic, but ended up fizzling out, not quite happening, probably because of the efforts and energy of whatever GMOs or, or whatnot that were in the background. And now we're discovering like, oh, well, when you're profoundly asleep at the wheel and doing nothing, or even like trying to be malfeasant about like a pandemic response, this is what happens. We get global orders of magnitude of a potential extinction level event and like it could yeah, have just dude. like it could have just been some you know getting used to wearing a mask for like two or three weeks and then like having it be nothing is insane yeah it was it was pretty crazy the response from the government 
mm-hmm. and the and the World Health Organization and such. They basically were like making a bunch of like completely incorrect statements at the start, and then like backpedaling on all of them, and then being like, "Wait, hold on! Uh, it turns out this, just like every other, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, flu, is also airborne." Uh, which remember at first I was saying it, it was uh, transferred via water droplet particles on surfaces. Totally, and there was a lot like, of that. You should Clorox like all of your surfaces and stuff like that. I mean, you know, it's like maybe that panoply of best practice and just not knowing any better and just doing everything that's in our arsenal. I can get that, but mm. uh, you know, as we've refined it, it is tough that there's still so much like a lag of information where we still plenty of hocus pocus and otherwise. And you know, from that perspective too, of shows it's like here we are the harbingers of like people desperately need the event again. And we're probably as, as it has been kind of talked about, like we're 2022 summer is probably like the soonest that we'll be like fully back to business, but you can see how we're trying to spin wheels and like, you know, Hey, our, our whole gig is to push, push air. (laughs) Right. Loudly. Yeah, exactly. we're, We're in a tough, tough spot this way, increasingly to the awareness of people. Yeah, I mean, there's been some photos floating around. Did you see the photo of Lollapalooza? That was... I mean, I've seen some of the output from it, but I don't think I've seen anything specifically that would speak to this directly, but... Yeah, the that was like a full-fledged, like, 50,000-person festival or something. Sure. There's, like, photos of, like, drone shots of just, like, as many people as you can basically fit. It was like a Coachella-sized thing or something. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, Lollapalooza yeah. is a fun event to play, but I only can imagine in this in current environment how they would have possibly enforced, you know, negative tests or or kind of uh, yeah, vaccination they're, they're, proof. Yeah. They're just not. Um, there's a lot of clubs too that are saying that they are and then are not. Like I had a friend uh, the other day play at a club in Florida, uh, and he what he did is he called the Florida uh, he called the club um, mm-hmm. from his hotel before he went pretending to be a fan that wanted to go to the show and he was like are you telling me i have to get like a negative test result and wear a mask at this show that's bullshit and then the club owner was or whoever answered the phone was like no 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 it's fine you don't have to do that and then he I was mean, like florida right, florida is actually like many of the states that are republican controlled or republican governors mm-hmm. they've actually mandated that you can't do testing you can't you can't enforce this and uh and it's going to make it so regressive for the American scene because the people who are still on the ground who need to make a make a living by touring widely, they're going to have these weird, you know, spots where they just they can't be reliable or they have to cancel shows or they have to push things off or, or even worse yet, endanger their fans in order to kind of just like be a musician in 2021 is is a really tough decision. I would ever I would hope no one would ever have to make. Um, but you've you've pivoted to to both this podcast which i'm so appreciative of to be able to come down and to talk with you um it's been a long time since we last crossed paths but yeah i think production classes in general like i know you're always giving out great tips and stuff so i would assume that that kind of became more of what you were spending time during pandemic with yeah definitely well i've been doing that actually before since before the pandemic um like, for instance, I've also had the experience of teaching at Berkeley, except I, I taught at the one in uh, Valencia. Oh, crazy. Um, okay. So, I like, didn't know. yeah, my buddy Ben, who um, writes music under the name Incanti, he, mm-hmm. uh, he, he studied at Berkeley in Boston and then um, sort of got into teaching at the, the he, he helped develop actually the like 
sort of sound design course mm-hmm. there, like the electronic music sound design course and also electronic music performance. And then he wanted to take like a miniature sabbatical. So I ended up taking over for him for a, mm-hmm. for a couple of months. And yeah, it was a great experience. So, so I've had a little bit of experience doing that too. And then I've also, yeah, just got like my website plus, mm-hmm. which effectively is like a Patreon, uh, which really like Patreon really took off for artists and Twitch I found yeah. like during the pandemic. Cause artists like, you know, we just have this need to like output things, right. You, you can't just like releasing things and like giving it to people in exchange for money. Almost it's like this essential <laughs> other part of writing well, music. If, if a tree falls in the wood and, and woods and nobody hears the sound, does it ever happen? And much the same way, if you put out a release and nobody's there to like resonate with it, is it actually having its desired effect or you're having an emotional, physical, and sometimes spiritual connection. And so I can totally understand people who are used to DJing and they want to, even if it's just somebody in a chat room, it makes such a huge difference than just, you know, being recorded on a camera and then having it uploaded onto a totally disembodied, you know, non real time thing. It's just, it's a different experience. Mm. And so the simultaneity of a Twitch or, you know, the kind of offerings that more personalized offerings of Patreon. I ha- I also launched a Patreon before, everything kind of happened it's kind of in an effort to try to learn about the space a little bit and maybe just put up the occasional sample pack or exclusive old song that didn't have a space on spotify but it has become so much more important to me to have this kind of level of connection with impassioned people that i would used to have talked to them across a merch table at a show and kind of maybe given them one sharp pointer or gotten their demo or something and now patreon is totally that wonderful stand-in for that like kind of community space yeah, it's really cool. I feel like how uh, during the pandemic we, we got forced into sort of figuring out how to do a lot of the stuff that we, um, you know, would do live over the internet and kind of forced everybody to like learn about these new platforms like Discord and Patreon and Twitch and stuff like that, which was awesome, I think, because uh, I mean, it would have taken a lot longer, I think, for all of those platforms to get as widely adopted as they did otherwise. Um, not saying that the pandemic was like, it's amazing that this happened. It obviously was not, but like there was, you know, some little silver linings there, I think. Well, it was an accelerator of a lot of different of ills and good. And uh, I would say one of the ills that I encountered and which is not wholly evil, but it left a bad taste in my mouth was like NFT kind of as a Mm. culture, um, as a speculative culture. It's like, it's an incredible thing on paper in terms of solving some of the inefficiencies, inequalities that happen in the streaming space, especially. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then in terms of just like making art on the blockchain, God, I don't need another email (laughs) trying to get me as a convert, uh, even after being a little bit in the space um, and, and just discovering the kind of malfeasance by some of the players. It's really tough. And that's something I got super accelerated by everything that was happening and, you know, not wholly evil, but gosh, really tough. Yeah. Yeah. I've been constantly getting emailed by NFT companies who are like, Hey, would you like to essentially give us your art? So our platform has any form of tangibility associated with it. <laughs> Cause you know, a lot of, I feel like the NFT world, they're basically like begging for their uh, tokens to have some artistic tangibility associated to it you know i mean it gives it a whole different dimension of of meaning right because right now like the punks and the monkeys are winning out in that space the very kind of limited collectible witness thing and everybody recognizes how small-minded that is right like it's or especially when you can have additions made by a neural network and like endless supply of them like what's the value (laughs) right 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely do not understand the NFT thing. Like, I understand what they're trying to do technically and, and whatnot, but I don't understand it conceptually. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, and then on top of that, you got like the environmental impact of it all and all that kind of Which stuff. Which is probably should be overshadowing everything, but it, it did get pushed down quite a bit in the conversation because people needed to make ends. People needed to make money. And it, goodness. <laughs> Yeah, art on yeah. commerce is is like oil and water, and but we've we found a way to, <laughs> to make that into a salad dressing that everybody loves so much, seemingly. And, uh, yeah, it's tough. yeah. I, I think what it was is that everyone just got like those greedy money eyes when they saw Grammatic make like you know fifty, sixty grand in in a single night, and you know Eprom made like fifteen thousand dollars, and uh who else uh, like, like jimmy edgar's Beeple. done very well yeah. and Beeple, of course yeah. <laughs> is the ultimate but especially yeah. Beeple being like the background noise for every show that's been since like you know they're they've been doing their freebie giveaways every visual artist's probably like either is directly using Beeple's makes or has like you know like at least the aesthetic has been picked up everywhere and like to have them get theirs quote unquote you know like their daily drops being assembled into this big million 69 million dollar piece of of sales for whatever that official um christie's or whatever that thing is mm. and it's just so funny that it's like selling that aesthetic of basically the aesthetic of the underground bass show for 69 million dollars <laughs> yeah it's crazy and the, the other crazy thing is the person who bought that doesn't actually own people's art they mm -hmm. own a hash of his art on the blockchain <laughs> well and in some ways like like since people always was giving it out for free there was never an ascribed value to it much like our own music in some ways and so this is where blockchain is kind of interesting i find is that like we do a song and we we give it these dimensions that we give it the dimension of of like a top line and a harmony is all you can copyright in traditional um, copyright systems like what we call the mechanical copyright would be different but in terms of the songwriter's copyright all we can do is this top line and then the kind of the overall vibe of the song and it's so nebulous and it's so flawed and everyone knows that the copyright system is flawed and the song itself is just whatever you can kind of sell it for but you know largely the marketplace has decided that that's like 99 cents to a dollar and 29 cents <laughs> at least in american terms that's our ascribed value for a song and here are these people who are like well what if we try this model of basically creating scarcity in other ways, such as like the NFT idea. And that is just, you know, like, why not, I guess. And, you know, you have plenty of examples of physical media going for thousands of dollars because of, of scarcity and like, why not the song itself? And, but then of course it's all hocus pocus, magic, magic make. Right. Yeah. I, I think, um, blockchain stuff is interesting in the sense that it, um, the problem it's essentially trying to solve at its root is deleting middlemen from the equation, right? Like you have things like like DoorDash and Uber and all this stuff <laughs> where you you feel comfortable giving somebody 20 bucks, like a stranger, 20 bucks over the internet to drive you somewhere. And the reason why you feel comfortable with that is because there's this large corporation in between the two of you, like essentially uh, mitigating risk uh, on both ends, like mit mitigating risk that you're going to lose your money if they don't show up or if they don't show up that like you'll, you'll have some sort of uh, retribution for that and then on the other end on the driver's end um, you know you're star rated on on a system and and there's a good chance that you're not going to murder them whilst they're driving you somewhere <laughs> you know uh, so so th this middleman situation in you know a case like uber makes a lot of sense um, and i feel like blockchain like nfts and smart contracts and and all of that kind of stuff is is 
getting to the point where it's like maybe can solve some of those problems. Um, but I think people are like missing that point completely. Well, especially because like we've been solving this problem. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how long you've been touring for. Uh, and I, I, I assume that you have been at it long enough, maybe that you have a similar experience as myself, where there, the DIY scene was a, was a huge part of the community that brought me forward and that I was able to have, thankfully, some time in to the degree that I that you made a show happen because you you somebody told somebody that you were worth booking and you would kind of you know it didn't always work out as a system and obviously there was lots of flaws but this kind of idea of like a community that holds each other accountable and a community that also is looking out for the better good of not only the other artists involved or the venues but also the participants in terms of an audience and so you have this like multi-pronged like large sprawling messy community that has to self-govern and it's totally doable at even large scales um it just takes time which is something that people don't like to spend it's like more valuable than the money they're using and it also takes a community that really is is willing to have like hard conversations about accountability and kind of moving forward like you know if a venue isn't worthy of, of being played because it has a bad sense sound system or it doesn't have safety protocols it's like having artists be like you know i don't don't trust this don't play there don't work for this person right, and that right. the community taking that seriously and, and not doing it no matter what kind of dollars are flashing in front of them and so i appreciate that there are like you know, it's like we see a lot of this where Amazon came along and like outdid the bookstore because they were willing to go cheaper and harder and people responded to that. But it's such a, a base level solution to what is a much more complex problem. And so equally, you know, the Ubers of the world are, are being this lubricant. But really, I just would love it if we could do it from a ground up situation and like just take the lessons we learned um, by being DIY musicians or DIY makers and just like scale that. But of course, that doesn't scale so easy. It's a tough combo. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. Um, going back to copyright law and stuff like that, uh, how did, uh, I know your tune experience has been sampled by like some pretty big artists like, uh, like Mad Lib and Drake and mm -hmm. a bunch of other people. Yeah. Um, how did the copyright work for that? Cause I mean, I assume you recorded that accordion in your studio, right? Yeah, totally. It was like, it was actually a record. Um, so my record invention was my kind of my first official record. And it was really plunderphonic. There was a lot of different sampling going on. I used a lot of records and other things. But that one song experience, weirdly enough, and probably the reason why Madlib responded to it the way they did, the way he did, was because I, I it was an all original recording. Like it was me really with the instruments. Uh, I borrowed my friend Ben Wendell to play some saxophone on that piece. I even sang poorly on the song. Um, and I did all these things inexplicably. It ended up being like a four-handed accordion part, effectively. So there's all these things about it that make it odd. Um, but, but since it's all original, it was always in my back pocket. Um, and when, when, uh, mad villain was happening and the whole reason they actually ended up doing accordion is kind of circuitous, but it's kind of a fun story in of itself. I've talked about it in the past, but when accordion got put together, it was really like a handshake kind of deal. They hit me up right before the record was coming out cause it had to be re-recorded and, uh, they was kind of them. And just because I was kind of in the sphere of stone's throw, I knew some of the people behind it, but I'm the only credited sample on the mad villain record. If you look in like the booklet, which of course nobody mm. looks in <laughs> booklets anymore, but if you look in the booklet, it credits my sample. And, um, I was able to be in the music video and all this stuff, but it was really just like, Oh, this is a really cool experience. I'm really happy to be part of this project. But because the song had such a longer life of many, many people, like, I don't know why that song in particular, there's a lot of excellent music on that record, but, they responded to that one song pretty viscerally. And so not only like the Drakes and 
kitten kitties and like uh, Donnell Jones and Trippy Reed or Red or whatever, and like all these other people were just like did their thing on it, and it, it it has meant that my exerting exertion of the copyright got a little bit messy for a while. Like I had to bring in a lawyer for a few instances of people like kind of maliciously using it or just kind of like running with it, which is you know in many ways like I'm an artist that samples like. I don't like being sued by other people. And I also really don't like it when art gets litigated. Mm -hmm. Um, But when people are malicious, it's one thing if somebody comes up and goes, Hey, I'm doing this. Like I've almost always given people free right to, to do, or just like, you know, appreciated when people will break me off a little bit, but it's like, it's really easy to say yes. It's really easy to be like, go for it. it. It's, it's much more malicious when people are trying to get one over on you and they're like doing it on purpose. It's like, why? Right. It's like we're all connected in this music world. Like, yeah, especially you know, with somebody like Drake, right. Who's like getting fucking, I think he's one of the most played artists on Spotify. Um, makes it yeah. a really easy conversation and it's not hard to reach anybody. And, and yeah, I mean, I had, I had one situation where some, some people, would use the song thinking it was just the Mad Lib version. Of course, then the kind of like weird rights <laughs> that the way they trickle down becomes hard. Like it was used on that, that show masters of none in like the background music in a, in a bar. And right. that took a little bit of like, like figuring out how that was going to be attributed, but we live in a messy world. So it's all, I don't want to play clean up. I would rather much, much more make music, but mm. I guess. Well, that's, that's why NFTs could be good, right? Like that mm-hmm. could, if everything was logged on a on a blockchain or something that could kind of a you know facilitate some of this cleanup shit yeah get... but but then it just requires everything being watermarked and like yeah exactly i don't know i kind of i like i love the anarchy and chaos of just like <laughs> here's your samples here's your thing make some sounds if people like it and enjoy it they could like the freemium model. Like I know it, it's not the most revolutionary thought anymore, but remember when Bandcamp came around and like mm-hmm. Radiohead, it wasn't on Bandcamp, but it was basically the same model of like Radiohead did that record and they were like, pay what you want. And they were very successful, of course, because they're Radiohead and people were like, you know, wanting to hit them off. But like this pay you want model, like how have you done any of that with your records? Have you done any of that? Like, yeah, the first of- like five years of releasing albums and stuff, I never accepted a set price for it i was always like pay what you want and then i was like okay i have to actually make money so (laughs) well i mean i assume too it's like one of those things where people then encounter your music much more in the wild than they would normally you know that that small barrier of 99 cents it's like even though people will so freely throw dollars at their barista or like you know spend a million bucks on a fancy feast that lasts just for uh, lasts on their palate just for a moment and then they will really have a heart be hard pressed to like break away with a dollar 50 for like some lossless wav on like <laughs> like a digital thing yeah something that I could think... conceivably last forever and change their life but they're like i don't know <laughs> yeah i'm scared yeah i think yeah. like when the digital mediums came around people had a hard time with that because they were like it's just a digital wave that i'm paying for like you know i can't how can i spend my money on that i'm not even getting like a you know paper disc like a you know, a little piece of aluminium that I can, or plastic that I can chuck in a CD player, you know, that will sound worse and maybe skip and you know, maybe I'll scratch it and it will never play back again. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it in my car for two months and then I'll never be able to play it again because it'll melt. Um, right. But the physical thing we haven't really conditioned for the kind of the way that that has value versus the digital. And that's a kind of a failure of culture. Again, just going back to the song, like we've kind of reduced songs down to these weird metrics and kind of said that they're 
important because they have a unique melody, which of course we all know is like the most false thing. It's just like a, a all melody and all like harmony kind of go back to like the same precepts of what like 12 tones can do anyways. It isn't like anything too new in the field, but like that being said, um, yeah, it would be nice if we could like solve this completely and uh, just be able to move forward with like the act of creation. Kind of encourage yeah. students to do that often, like at school, now that I'm increasingly teaching students to kind of find an artistic voice. It's so amazing to be like, yeah, everything y'all do, it's been all done before. And yet at the same time, no one's ever done it like you have. So nothing's ever been done before. <laughs> like just square those two things and you'll be fine. Right. Yeah. That's a hard, hard thing to square though. Right. It's like this idea, you know, you'll have days sometimes where you're just like, what's the point? It's been, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then other days where you're like, holy shit, I'm like breaking new ground and like really neither is true ever. <laughs> Always. And I love that, you know, every time people, I've, I talked to a fair group of, of, of producers specifically about their writer's block. They're like, I can't, I can't figure out a melody. I can't do a harmony. I can't do a drum part. Like I'm totally blocked right now. And it's like, well, a, have you looked back at your old tracks and both laughed at how ridiculous they are, but also like how genius they are simultaneously, like always like how cobbled together and how naive and how you could never even do that again. Like if you tried to sit down and make the track, it would never quite have its visceral feeling that something old might've had. And then on the flip side, it's like, just sit down and like the equipment will like tell you everything it needs to do. Like just, if you just figure out how to do a feature that you've been putting off, like that'll be a whole like million tracks right there. Mm. It's just funny how, yeah, sometimes we often like have just, all the tools intuitively and we just yeah choose to ignore Right. Like the ego gets in the way or whatever, that whole I'm the shit versus I'm shit mm -hmm. thing. It's like <laughs> that these two extremes are like the, the same shitty part of your brain essentially fighting your creative process. Well, and oftentimes, I mean, one of the things we ignore is like we we do all this music stuff as self-soothing or as some kind of like internal psychology where there was something that pushed us. I oftentimes joke about this, like as performers, usually I think about this as like there was something that got you up on a stage at some point in your life, some public speaking gig or some kind of early show. And rather than most people who were like deterred and like hated the experience and, and went away, much like kind of somebody with a gambling addiction, sadly, we got on that stage and it was went terrible, but we were like, we love the failure of this and we're doubling down and doubling down and doubling down to eventually you make it work for you and that it can be something you live in. But it oftentimes does come from like a, a usually a terrible experience or something hard that then the brain doesn't compute as being like, okay, we're going to just put this away and never do it again. Mm. But we, we sign up for it for life. Yeah, I think those those terrible experiences, um, which I to some degree have almost at every show I play, mm. is like a really important because it's it's what drives me to keep trying to make my set better. You know, like I was playing a show in Denver like on the weekend actually, mm. and there was just like a bunch of mixes in the set where I was like, oh, that, that could have just been better. And like, <laughs> and I know like nobody else gave a shit. Like at mm -hmm. the end, everyone was like, oh, that was great. Um, but like in my own mind, I was just like, man, I could like execute all of this, like a lot, a lot cleaner. And it just, yeah, it leaves me always with this like kind of rotten feeling, which is like not a nice feeling, but it's like I, the response I always have to that feeling is mm -hmm. I could just improve on this and make it better. Well, and that's fascinating too, especially with the conversation that's happening in the sport world right now. I don't know if you're familiar at all with what's going on, especially in professional tennis, where you have some of these like really 
A-list players that are now d- demurring from basically playing because it's like, I'm not, when I lose, I'm not happy. When I win, I'm not happy. Mm. Why, why am I participating in this sport at this high level? And I think, you know, there were some musicians where that maybe like yourself, maybe there's a similar conversation to be had about what is satisfaction and what's the end goal. And of course, often for us, I mean, maybe in sport, it's much more critical that you win or lose, but you're, the only dimension is the game. For us, we could be producing, we could be performing, we could be talking about our craft and sharing it in so many different ways. I don't know for you if performance is such like a, a really important measure in that. I mean, and I think people really do benefit from your shows. They really do benefit from seeing your perspective and hearing it um, presented loudly and like in the way that you do. But um yeah, I mean, it, it may just be one of the aspects of your craft that you're exploring and that, you know, that we're really lucky to have that dimensionality. But we, we probably could be used to have more people like, do you know Dim Light, the artist? Dim Light? I do not. They are a, I want to say a Swiss artist. They are awesome, really talented, incredible beat maker, like all time. Like if, if you gave me a top five beat makers, like they would be like top three, at least if not number one just insanely talented but like doesn't play shows doesn't really have a presence online as well and stuff like that. exactly exactly and i think boards of canada you know maybe played a handful right or you know christ one of the members of boards of canada has done some further things or associated acts has done some further things but it is that thing of like or like burial perfect other example like just Maybe some people just don't play shows and that's, that should be cool. But obviously it's, it's hard in our world in our line of work to make ends there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I always wonder like, how is, I mean, Burial's uh, album, Ar- uh, what was it? Archangel, whatever the, the, the one with Archangel on it, yeah. I guess it's like his only real album, right? Like <laughs> Untrue, um, I think is the name of the record, right? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah. I've always been curious how, how he's like gone so long without doing a show. He like, he must have a job, right? Cause I don't think like that one record could have funded his entire life. Yeah. I think he works at an EA GameStop, I think, uh, or like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know, but like, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, no one knows who he is, right? So like it was possible. I think but, at various times people have kind of known who they are. Um, and certainly the code nines of the world and, and whatnot have a main line, but or the kind of work they did with, you know, other producers, Fortet, I think Tom York or these, whatever else. And, but equally, like, I just love the fact that you can have people where we can prize them as artists that don't need to have that, hold that space. And equally, like there should be probably more electronic performers that can DJ other people's music and don't have to, they themselves don't have to be um, producers even though I don't like ghostwriters, I don't like this our idea of artists who who claim to be the producer and have like tons of ghostwriters. And you probably have done ghostwritten work for other people. Mm-hmm. I only can imagine. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, like why not have people who can be just excellent performers that can hold those shapes and do that thing? Wait, what is your what, what's your problem with ghostwriting? Just that you know, it's like it it creates a false system where people think that what they see on stage is the kind of the, the genius dilemma of holding somebody up on a platform and not seeing the kind of the, the, the beautiful, but complex truth of how we all are cobbled together associations of other music and other ideas. And we just, Mm -hmm. we happen to put these, some, you know, some people up on these pedestals that just don't belong there and they kind of play into the mystique of it. And it's just like, I know it's the mythologies are part of what people are performing into but I would, you know, I would rather it all be 
you know, if somebody's going to play like, I don't know, it's, I don't want to shoot out particular EDM acts for what their, their, their sins are, but it just, it's much better if we lived in a messy world full of creative people that were, you know, ever, ever expanding rather than like, or it's a perfect, like Lady Gaga is a great example. Like we know there's a team of musicians behind them. Right, we know yeah, it's a complex just, system uh, that, that creates that web work of a pop person being elevated and, and kind of, you know, they're exploring it and they're kind of, you know, it may not be the most loud thing in the mix, but it's there versus some other EDM. Oh God, should we just talk about it? But I don't know. It's like, it I, mean, just seems I mean, I know the person who produces Lady Gaga is Tom Norris, who produces like a bunch of shit. He does like, set. I mean, I don't think he produces a lot of like for Zed and stuff, I think he might just do like the production slash like adds like some additional well, blood stuff. pop as well. Right. Like blood pop is like the main producer of a lot of that the material and right. And, uh, but like, we all know that at some level versus some of these EDM acts where it's like, they're the producer. Like the vast majority of people think that they're the person cause it's their name on all, all aspects. And there's never even like writer's credit given elsewhere or whatever, you know, it isn't like a mess when you see the record it isn't a mess of like 27 names on a track. Well, I it's think all like those people, sample. those people would be getting like hooked up via their PROs and, yeah. you know, they'd be like written in as a writer. I'm pretty sure on the back end, but I think people don't like to see that either. You know, they kind of, it's like seeing the inside mess of a Max MSP patch or something. It's like, sometimes you just want that nice GUI on the outside. And but you that's just why I think if we just sold them as artists, we sold them as people who were, you know, performers of excellence. But even the, the the sad truth is a lot of these are the same kind of faces that have been going around since like the late nineties, early aughts. And they're kind of, they have large industries of management and bookers and they're kind of, you know, people are relying on these people, commercial success. And so even though they're not great performers, you know, the vast majority of DJs are not great performers. They're, they're just there and they've kind of, they've learned their pantomime and they have huge pyrotechnics and like giant led walls and the visual artists should be the ones that are like hmm. top lining and like getting all the pay. The Beeples, again, going back to Beeple, should be the ones right. that are super um, uplifted. But it's just not the case because we still need the artifice of that one DJ who's like pumping their fist at the, or, you know, like telling hmm. the people when the drop's happening or whatever. Right. And it just, it's just, it just feels unfair to me. And also, of course, they crowd out new voices, right? Like we have someone like More Kismet on their way up and they are awesome as a performer and they have some great production chops. And we should be celebrating them and they are getting some shine. It's great, but they should be, you know, super ascendant, but obviously top line main stage stuff is really hard to break into mm. as much as they seem like they're on a hot one right now. I could easily see that fizzling out just because, you know, the EDM stars of the world just want to do another run around, <laughs> get their cash grab. Right. Yeah. To some degree though, there's also something to be said, I think for um, those artists having a vision and mm -hmm. pulling this team of people together in this particular uh, position that they're in both financially and clout wise to be able to pull these certain teams together and, and then putting together these like amazing experiences for people right like like excisions paradox tour or um you know amon tobin's uh you know crazy eyes am thing it's like a lot of other artists don't have a the budget for this or b like know even where to start like contacting the teams to do this and but they put together these incredible experiences for people and i think that is also like kind but of cool and important yeah no you're talking about visionaries though and the vast majority of of what what i'm kind of talking about are people who are are not pushing the new or pushing it forward or even like daft punk's pyramid which is you know daft punk being a group of an assemblage of sample material but still had a vision for what a performance could be like 
but you have people who are like two or three gens behind that and they're kind of just like riding coattails or heels mm-hmm. and uh and and you know you're absolutely right though too we should be more i should be more nuanced about it i just kind of get my <laughs> fist at the sky sometimes about how yeah, the old man yells at cloud yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. i may not be a man but i can at least uh, shake my fist a bit so yeah yeah, yeah. um so yeah i guess uh like let's move on to some other stuff uh, actually we could we could stay on performances um speaking of performances you had that like archimedes thing right like that thing with all the all the mirrors which was fucking awesome for people who don't know what that was it was basically like a bunch of i don't know like 10 10 inch by 10 inch mirrors or whatever like put put on these like servo motors it looked like that were all like rotating in unison with one another and when you shone lights on it just looks really crazy there's like all this insane reflection going on and stuff which is kind of genius because it's like essentially taking what's already there on the stage just all of these lights and stuff that Mm -hmm. are going to be there anyway and just like doubling the power of all of them um what was i guess like the the process like for a coming up with that conceptually plus uh you know the cost of it and like the touring logistics and all and all of all of that stuff and and i guess the other question would be do you have plans to like tour with it with it again or was that just sort of like one installation and no no it was interesting so i got approached uh this would be 2011 i got or prior to 2011 i got approached to do the coachella that year so i knew i was going to be on the main one of the main stages um at a like a, a prime slot and knowing this in advance and kind of feeling the direction of where a lot of EDM was at that time. Um, dubstep was in ascendance, especially the American sound. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we were seeing at that time was shows that were again, full of pyrotechnics and full of shock and awe, but they would oftentimes diminish the performer. Like the less you, I mean, no offense to Amon Tobin. I absolutely adore Isan. And I, I think what they did indeed was visionary, but often, and this is a critique I know has been said before, but, the times that the, the the installation worked the worst was when you saw Amon Tobin. Right. <laughs> it was like the video mapping was so revolutionary and the kind of big, big thought of it. But then you still had to have the artifice of the person performing in it. Mm. And in some ways, I would have preferred if it was just a complete movie that ignored the kind of the need to have someone at a DJ booth and kind of moving things around. And you just had like the complete vision um, of like what would have been like a really transgressive performance that kind of undid a lot of the notion of like facing a certain way, even though the sound system is all around you and all these different aspects of that we've been kind of ingrained in our experience. But so hyping the performer was always been my bag. Like I always love using controllers and kind of including the audience's reactions. And so the idea of using a larger light show, I just, I, I just couldn't for the life of me, like figure out how I'd how I did that without like losing some either this 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 uh, instantane instantaneousness like when I looked at video systems they almost always have delays at least at that time and then also in addition to that any amount of led walls they're just like this big old production to like move in and out and all these things and like and also just crazy crowding. expensive as well yeah <laughs> exactly and so I worked with like the most hodgepodge group of people this one person Emmanuel Bayard who was this visionary that did shows in Manchester England and it's one of those things where I think if, if I had approached like a large touring company, they would have laughed at me and they would have said it was impossible. Just the cost would have been astronomical. And it just been like, this is impossible to move around. This could be like a show at the Barbican or like one off, but it would have been like, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars. Why, why would they think that though? Because uh, when I looked at it, I was like, that's genius. You could just mm-hmm. stack all those mirrors up in a foam box. That's yep. one Pelican case of mirrors. And then like, 
the I don't exactly know how the structure worked behind it, but surely it's foldable or something. It was completely. It was very modular. We were able to do different setups, and the the server motors were really were really awesome. But the reason why is because the skill set it takes to do robotics of any kind is really specialized, and so even just from a, a standpoint of envisioning it, and then even the smallest amount of fabrication would have been really hard if it had been the music industry. But because Emmanuel Bayer had a friend that was in the car industry, the automotive industry. And the person he sourced, this this, this uh, gentleman named David, was just so like maybe frustrated musician, but just frustrated automaker basically, <laughs> and was just down to be a mad scientist. And so mm-hmm. just the three of us basically did almost all the fabrication and needed uh, from concept to execution. And it's just amazing what's possible with a few people who just don't know any better. And we totally didn't know better in the in the sense that also like it, it did cost quite a bit of money. And to, to be totally frank, it cost me about 50,000 pounds. Oh, wow. But I was able to make that up with a really strong touring mindedness. And I, although I walked away from that tour with like nothing in pocket, right. it was an incredible run of shows and culminating mm-hmm. at a Coachella that, you know, everything was beset by technical errors and learning moments. But it was presented something I think that was wholly different than what people had witnessed before. And and also to me, one of the most successful moments that was inadvertent but was great at the show was that when the mirrors not only flashed around and showed some of the lighting in, in unique ways or myself performing, um, it would also show the audience's faces and kind of put a direct reflection back. Even if just for a moment as the thing twisted around and kind of gave people insight, right. they could see themselves dancing or enjoying in ways that, you know, just <laughs> doesn't get highlighted too often. And, you know, maybe people don't yeah. want to see that they're kind of looking for a disbanding of reality rather than reinforcing. Right. Right. <laughs> but it was really special to tour with. And yeah, even though, it, so I think I, when I talked to a few other people and I've done other shows since sometimes simpler, sometimes different, um, nothing is, has ever quite reached those heights. Um, I did a wonderful show with spinning, spinning lights and spinning, uh, spinning strings to do these like beautiful physical formed animations. It was great. And then also another one that used like um, a recursive video kind of uh, setup that was with Time Boy specifically, who does a lot of work with Flying Lotus. Uh, awesome shows, awesome different visual shows. But in the end, yeah, I think my crazy machinations have been met with the reality that's just like, dang, it's hard to go on tour with people. It's hard to like take more than like you and a sound person out in the road. I just don't even have any concept how bands do it, much less. Oh, yeah, they just make like no money, essentially. I think like the way bands do it, um, like periphery, right? Like I know the the guys in that band quite well. Mm. And essentially what they've told me is like, touring is basically just a business card for them to like take on outside ventures uh mm. in the software world and whatnot when they get home and then they said and this is how i looked at Bandcamp when it first came around mm. too this this pay what you want thing for me was just like a way to accrue fans to re-monetize those fans in a different way mm. so you, you basically like essentially get the fans using this business card of a show or a free release or something like that um and then from there you're able to go like all right you're now my fan like now would you like to give me money for a different thing (laughs) Um, i mean and i appreciate that but i do think there and this is where i totally agree with you but it's interesting where it's like the visceralness of a show where if you get person at the right juncture in their life at the right moment in their like adolescence often they will be your fan for life, right? Like they will have some Mm -hmm. awareness of you, much less like fandom for you forever. But because the show is the arbiter of that, 
Like if you don't tour it and keep it kind of in their memory space, it will like fade differently. They'll buy a record and they'll be like, this isn't the thing that I did that one time. (laughs) Or, you know, maybe they'll be reignited. And certainly people who are real music involved or like listen, listening learners or whatever the thing is that kind of gets them excited about it. It's hard to monetize again and again uh, a song that isn't that sweet spot, whereas they would just buy the record over and over again if it just was slightly different each time. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you have to sort of, in a way, I guess, balance. Um, and this is sort of going into the original conversation we we're having about how Corona mm-hmm. sort of got rid of that uh, anxiety. But yeah, you have to kind of, in a way, balance that uh, anxiety of knowing that you almost have to be doing the same recycled things over and over again versus uh, doing completely fresh things. Uh, Unless you hook you... them in originally on on the concept that is going to be chaos every time. And then... Mm-hmm. Or you unless have... we live in a non-capitalist society. <laughs> oh my gosh. Imagine that. Imagine that. But here I am yeah. too. Like I'm selling people on a higher education. Like, you know, Berkeley's not a cheap place to go. Mm. And I know that, you know, oftentimes the success there isn't so much what they're going to be learning, but it's the people to the left and right of them. They're going to be meeting super talented musicians that aren't necessarily from the same headspace. And that's probably going to be what guarantees their success way more than like what I teach them in like an Ableton class. <laughs> right. That's okay. uh, so with your performances, you use the monome, and I've mm-hmm. forever seen you using that thing. And for people who don't know what it is, it's kind of, I believe the one you use is the 16 by 16, right? Mm-hmm. Is totally, it, um, 256, yeah, 256 buttons. Yeah, so pe- I guess like um, the design of it is sort of uh, sort of like an APC 40, but without everything else, it's just the grid of buttons. So I, I love the design of them. They're really clean. Like there's just a wooden box with an aluminium faceplate with just a bunch of buttons. Totally. And um, I think when I saw you playing, I played after you at some show in Miami once. And I and I think I remember seeing MLR on your screen. Totally, uh, yeah. Do you still use MLR to uh, to play with the Monome Live? When I use the Monome, so I've also like I've kind of changed up my craft a little bit. Now I have like a separate show that's all modular. And oh, I cool. really enjoyed the difference of that. And I use even the modular in kind of similar ways. Like I'm doing sample based work, but with different outcomes. Um, but yeah, with the monom, I use a version of MLR that was developed for Ableton. So it's a max for live mm-hmm. patch, even though it still uses some clever JavaScripting to get it so that it's persistent and not like, you know, kind of uh, doing some of the things that happen with, with Ableton that can make Ableton less useful in that regard. But um, yeah, it's still like the basic bones of MLR that I've been using since 2003. If you can believe that (laughs) same kind of vibe, um, Brian Crabtree and, uh, what, what he invented is still so incredibly resonant. It's amazing. I feel such a beneficiary of that, like weird brief moment in 2002 when I met them and like just saw them executing, like just basically real time sample flipping at a time when that was like really scarce and still to this day, like vigorous, you know, movement of real material is not that easy to do. And it's just, mm. bon- it boggles my mind that we haven't like cracked this nut yet. That There isn't like. It's so difficult, that, right? Yeah. To, live electronic music is just this crazy fucking thing. That's, yeah, it's, it hasn't quite reached the, the level of live instrumentation yet in terms of how, uh, I guess, in uh, what's the word? Like 
um, just sort of on the fly it can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, when when you do these mono sets, like how much pre prep is required to get all the songs in there you want to play and get them chopped up on this MLR thing and like versus winging it, you know? Like yeah, it depends on the nature like of the that? show. Like it can be totally winging it. I've done plenty of like more experimental where I'm not caring about perfect sync. I'm not caring about necessarily like sonically satisfying outcomes. I just really want the spirit of the thing to be like really chop and screw and move. And like, however fast I can get my hands going is, is what the thing is. But what more often happens, especially for shows where there is an expectation of like, Hey, what is like, people can yell out a song and I can try to see if I can drop it in or if people can, (laughs) can be, you know, we live in a, in a still a very BPM like kind of rigid space where people just don't know how to move or dance to tempos. They're not like involved in, Mm. which is so bizarre, right? Like you'd be playing 150 and then you go down to 140 and they're just like, I don't know what to do anymore with my limbs. Like, (laughs) just like be cool about it and you'll get there but yeah but still like you can lose people real easy if you go out of pocket so i sometimes like to do a thing where i'll like be in a collection of a space and that takes a little bit of pre-organization in terms of like well what do i want to explore sound wise what's what are some useful things like just straight up dj tools that i can rely on and you know thinking about it from a dj set standpoint can give some freedom and then finally, from a molecular standpoint, there's just some samples that are just fun to play under fingers. The Amen Break is a perfect example. Like it's just fun to manipulate. Like it gives you a visceral reaction to the crowd. There is some understanding and organization of what that genre can mean. It pays homage to the originators that I am so uh, like uh, like I, I owe so much. And so it's just it's fun to to, to mine that territory as well. And then EPROM, just mostly other EPROM tracks. That's it. That's it. I'm done. Yeah, yeah, okay. So yeah, <laughs> the Armand Break and Eprom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually saw him recently. He's got a crazy show at the moment, a crazy mm-hmm. visual show, and um, uh, yeah, I've asked him to come on the podcast a few times. I think I annoyed him by asking him questions about free will on Twitter, <laughs> and he was like, "I can't believe you believe in this." Uh, speaking of which, what, what's your thoughts on free will? Like, but, like, like uh, versus which determinism? Like, yeah, no, I, I'm uh. I am fully, um, like I am a believer and practitioner of a certain form of magic, which determinism is very much part of, Mm. right? Um, Even though the uh, the idea of of free will is a fine one, and I think it's just part of commerce as well. There's this this wonderful idea that we have agency, which is useful, and the idea of empowering agency to make cool is, is fine, but it doesn't serve my purposes. And I, I really like this other entity and I most often esteem it as music that I am taking cues from and I'm trying to make, uh, what is like a very, like be very diligent about my listening and also be a compassionate, uh, listener who, who is then trying to make decisions that are, are kind and merciful in a world that is cruel and abject. Um, so in, in, I mean, that's kind of the spirit of things to reduce right. it down to like <laughs> some, oh, yeah, we, we, we can get into that stuff i mean like uh, obviously um based on your name and like you know the name of your show archimedes and such like you're yeah. you're obviously into greek mythology mm-hmm. uh so like what yeah what are you drawing from from that i guess like i assume that's kind of maybe where your inspiration also comes from from this belief in magic as well there's a lot of different traditions of magic but the artifice the idea of the creation um, especially one that has existed and will exist and we can source into, we can kind of dip, dip our ladle into and kind of drink um, with the awareness and knowledge that we also are corrupting ourselves through that knowledge um, is, is part of many magic traditions. And especially I, 
not the modern version, but like the traditional version of the Order of the Golden Dawn, which like really was trying to source itself from magical traditions that weren't Judeo-Christian, not Kabbalah-esque uh, and, and whatnot, are, are really fascinating by the sense that, you know, you have a system that is based on, on kind of knowledge and study, but also based on intuition and, and practical magic rather than just like the kind of hermetic or scholarly versions of that. Um, and so, you know, to also realize the potency and power of what we're doing as, as musicians, like when we, when we intone, when we make music, like we're in a temple space, we're like making sacred ground underneath us. Like we're, we're doing heavy lifting, but it can really be for stupid reasons and people really get it twisted often. Yeah, I think um, that's true. But I also think it's like, if you're actually like a very active listener and a very like, um, you spent, you put a lot of effort into, uh, telling the difference between what is kind of being done for the right reasons and what is not, it becomes very easy. I think to tell when you listen to a piece of music, like whether or not it's being made for the right reasons or not, or whether it's being made literally just because, uh, I guess like for function, right? Mm -hmm. Like to be played at shows or to be, to impress somebody or to, you know, for these egotistical reasons versus whether or not it's being made for these truly passionate reasons. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also don't think myself as a reliable narrator. I don't necessarily put myself <laughs> in the position of knowing things. I just, I do my best to sort it out in the moment and then try to be kind to myself when I do make erroneous ideas. And I mean, also I will share too, and this is something that I've held for a while is like my self-knowledge has been a really devious path where like for a long time, I felt myself to be very mask, very masculine. And then to find, to be able to admit to myself that over the years, like in through countless songs, like I was tattletailing on myself as being non-binary in ways that I was just deaf to myself because I was indeed putting my ear out elsewhere and, and like not allowing it to, to, to come to be like self-listening and how er errorful that was because it really affected a lot of my, like it gave me a lot of dysmorphia later in life when I just denied what was kind of constantly abundantly being said. And I just didn't, yeah, I wasn't paying attention to what I had to say in some ways. Right. Yeah. It's easy to be a, um, a uh, fallible narrator for sure i think when we have this again capitalist society in place right like there's such reward for doing things a certain way mm -hmm. and such punishment for doing things a certain way that um it is hard to trust yourself on some decisions because there's you know this reward versus not well uh, but isn't that kind of weird to think that there is ever a reward or ever a punishment like we're very temporary in this existence and that kind of idea of yeah, that there's the, I mean, I would like to think that there's recourse. I'd like to think that there's like outcomes, but it is hard sometimes to just imagine the possibility when we're, where we're fooling and like, we're fooling around in this kind of sacred space and we're kind of messing with the building blocks, but to think that we're ever amounting to anything is a very egotistical idea. And yet at the same time, like, how do we not try to find value and meaning in our actions? And it's mm. just tough sometimes. Right. Yeah. It's extremely hard to get past the ego of like me and what I'm doing in this reality and the body I'm in and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and yet at the same time, like I love my phone and I'll play games. I play so many <laughs> games, not on my, not only on my phone, but in life. And like, it, you know, we're all testing territory. We're all playing with a reality and toying with the options available to us. And I do esteem like those people, those like weird esoteric creative crazies who like have broken through and they're like completely of energy and light and just like eating air and you know or whatever <laughs> not a breathitarian but kind of that vibe you know and like 
the, the people who are really crackpot really appeal to me. And yet I keep on coming to different conclusions and like, I'm trying to understand why I'm so like hooked on this reality and like, mm. just, I mainline it constantly. Like it's my, <laughs> it's my addiction is just like waking up the next day and having the same things repeat. I'm getting on that train and doing that thing and trying to push the rock up a hill and very Sisyphean, like getting my liver eaten out and getting, <laughs> going back to mythology, like, yeah, it's abundant. And yet I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm an addict for the redundancy. Yeah, I think that's just kind of built into being a human, right? We just have mm. this like ingrained thing that's been pushed into us for like fuck millions of years. That's like you need to survive. You need to <laughs> do yeah. these things. And especially so. you need to survive when you know you're not going to. Right. Exactly. That trick of the mind where you're like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to survive. And yet I need to survive. And I'm scared of the end where I was scared of the end. And uh, yeah, I, I especially struggled. And maybe you can feel similarly. Like I struggled with coming from a lack of tradition. Like I didn't have a big backbone of like what to do in the face of birth or death or life or, and it, I really, and you know, this is such a cheesy thing, but I like really did learn on a dance floor, like what it was to like feel exalted and what it was to also be crestfallen and, and perished from the world in small ways that I feel like is the only way I'm going to, I the only way I have been able to react, react to the death of my peers has been in kind of like in concert in like in, in sound. And it, it, it just boggles my mind that people feel otherwise that like people need to put someone in a coffin to know that they've departed is the weirdest thing to me, but you know, each their own for sure. Right. Yeah, this segues kind of nicely into this other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is mm. that in 2020, you were named an uh, artist resident at uh, SETI, which stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yeah. Uh, how did that come about and what, what does that sort of entail? Yeah, it came about because I gave a talk. I gave a, a sound meditation at, at, at um, oh gosh, why am I blanking on the name? Sonar, at Sonar Festival in Spain. And mm -hmm. it was the same year they were hosting some people from NASA and some people from SETI and other other places. And I'm so happy to have had like deeper conversations with some of those, some of those guests and be able to eventually become an artist in residence at SETI um, was profound honor, but also like a really intriguing difficulty, you know, whereas a lot of times music is here to speak about the ineffable and really get into the corners and cracks where there isn't um, necessarily any proof, but a lot of feeling and SETI is kind of similarly natured. It's like the supposition that there is intelligent life We're we're aiming antennas up, not just because it's it's fun to listen out to the chaos or noise, background noise of the universe, but because this this idea out of billions of stars, there will be other life and that if we're not listening, there's no knowing. Um, but very much also in the same function and facet of like someone like Pauline Oliveros with their like deep listening activities, our simple looking upward to the stars also created the aliens that we're looking for at least in the, in the sense that those are the only aliens we're going to be able to get thus far with our antennas will be the ones that, that we will, we will figure out and find not to discount the countless other variations of multidimensional, whatever beings, but specifically with SETI, it's just like such an, a wonderful affirmation of what our like high, like to my mind, what our highest hopes as a humanity can be of like a non-government backed, but maybe government supported at times outcome looking for something that's outside of ourselves. Whereas most of the time, like when we talked about commerce, it's like, so it, it relies on being self-facing and kind of self-deprecating and yeah, the ego gets really strong and, you know, we're, we're the prime primary figure. We're the center of the solar system when it comes to ego, but with something like SETI, it's like, you have to dispose that and put it that we are just in our tiny corner of the universe and 
really ignorantly um, moving about, flailing these limbs in a way that like sometimes makes that we can walk around, but sometimes means that we're just having a tantrum on the floor. So anyways, right. being an artist residence just gives me this kind of outcome of, of trying to react to all these like big ideas pretty much just with like the same way I would with any kind of record is just sonifying feelings and thoughts and just like maybe bringing some more awareness to their to SETI's goals in in specific ways that I think are really kind of beautiful at times because mm. yeah I think it's a great goal to have but I'm a little bit of a pessimist just because of how how like huge space is it's just so hard to even conceptualize um like for instance one uh, I don't know if this is actually a fact, but it's something that I heard once upon a time is that if like you had two universes and they collided, like literally nothing would happen. They would just pass through one another because there's so much empty space. Like the chances of anything hitting anything is just, like apparently extremely low, mm -hmm. 100%. Um, which makes me think like, fuck, and we're looking for other life in that much vastness. Like mm -hmm. this seems like such an impossible task. Well, there's two things, right? One idea is that we're looking in really inefficient ways and we're getting orders of efficiency every year that we're attempting this both through the science, but also through the arts. Now, I know this is one of those ridiculous concepts, but again, simply looking means that we are more likely to find. And that's, of course, like a very easy, like kind of bit of, of reason that we can we can provide. But equally, every time you look again with another ear, another eye, another outcome, you are or you're increasing your chances Right. Um, and then also, if aliens want to be found, if aliens are in the kind of and and whatever we term as alien, obviously, we have this idea of ourselves out there rather than the kind of magnitude and of life. Technically, according to the U.S. government, I am an alien. <laughs> Careful there. Visa. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, one. Well, indeed, that's the kind of thing. It's like there's all kinds of different ideas of alienness and the way that we're also now being exposed to ufos constantly in the air around us but it's very likely to be of earth origin but it's still like these are alien aliens often of life that have different ideals and different different outcomes and to be paying attention to that at all and having an alien like yourself giving us testimonial on a dance floor or elsewise is really valuable to us it enriches all of our experience and so it isn't necessarily that we're looking for little green men, but the idea of just any kind of way by which intelligence might be bouncing around the universe. Like we're sending out radio waves constantly into the universe. And it's very likely that even though obviously it would just be a small blip, um, the way it kind of creates overall patterns, we would be the easiest to detect thus far of what we've been looking for because we're actually outputting the same thing that we're, we're, we're listening for. We are the transmitter. We're the speaker as well as being the antenna as is often the case, anyone that's had to make their headphones into a microphone on a DJ booth understands <laughs> this very well. Both right, systems right. are very... Uh, you just wire it backwards in a mm -hmm. yeah, transducer in the opposite form. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think really it ends up being, you know, we may never find alien life because of the infinitely small chances, but we will better ourselves in the process 100%. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a like a noble cause that's worth doing for sure. Um, all right, let's switch gears massively to, uh, questions that come from discord, <laughs> nice. which is always pretty hit and miss. Sometimes these are good. Sometimes they're not. Uh, all right. Somebody asks, um, do you have a favorite song that you've made? Um, gosh, no. Um, they're all strange misshapen children. Um, I, I will say that it's interesting how, and maybe you feel similarly, the songs that get regarded 
that get seen by others. Like I have plenty of songs that like seemingly never get heard. Like I can look at the Spotify numbers. Right. You I have can 20s. see the album sales. Yeah. I looked at your disco. You have like 23 albums and 17 EPs and then yeah, a I bunch a of few. remixes. Bunch of, yeah, and, it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. I have a few things. I'm not to Mad Libs level yet. I'm not to Merzbo um, or Muslim <laughs> Gauze or like there's all these bands that I always think of as being truly prolific. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere along those lines and, uh, I have you plenty know, of music. Merzbo is kind of playing the quantity game on easy mode, right? Like he's, <laughs> it's, it's noise music. You can easily, I think. It's hey, all... even if you play the video game on easy mode, you still finish the same game. Usually. Right. That's true. Just, just saying. Um, and that is a life hack. There's those, you know, like, what is it? Wolfpack put out like, you know, uh, records that were blank that were just right. like, you know, like no <laughs> noise and they would get counted on Spotify. And I guess that's valid from a certain kind of idea. But uh, <laughs> annoying, annoying and valid at the same time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have songs that because other people have emotional reactions to them have weight to me or that experience song that I did that got changed into accordion. Like it's an easy one to point at as being like, well, that's important to me. It it generates ears. It 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 rallies people to a cause. It gets some awareness towards a fragility in electronic music that doesn't often kind of come together. It doesn't often get seen or regarded. And like, so it's, that stuff is important to me, but I would say it's no more important than, than, you know, and oftentimes because every song to me is a time machine. Every song is like an exact registration of both, like where I've played it, when I conceived of it, the kind of elements that contributed towards it, the samples that I might've used. It's all like this crazy, like really personally important to me. So I would just, totally. I would reflect back to the person who asked the question, like what's important to them. And then it's like, that's important to me. And that's right. Hard. Right. It's also an impossible question to answer again, going back to free will and determinism. Um, if somebody asks me that question of what's my favorite track, like I'm completely confined to what I can even think of in that moment. So I'm like, all right, I can maybe think of the last couple albums I released. Um, but every now and then, I mean, I dig into my arsenal i'm like oh fuck this is a track that i actually released that i totally even forgot that i wrote so i was not free to pick that one when yeah. you asked me this question <laughs> um and so on so yes yeah, it's, it's a really hard question to answer actually it is but i do i do love these kind of thought experiments because i love it especially when i hear an artist because i think it's impossible and you've obviously registered similarly but i hear some artists who are like this one and i'm like how do you how do you know so quickly and how do you know so certainly Right. And, and, you know, I just, I, yeah, I, I, again, I think of myself as an unreliable narrator in the sense that maybe I'll have a different answer if you ask me at a different time, but for the longest it's been, I don't know, but I do, I do love when people have any kind of like, they know they have it in their back pocket. Well, I've, I've come up with the truest uh, or the most reliable answer for me is just whatever the last thing I made was, is usually so, my favorite thing. And that's a fine one. And I also love it when people are like, that, that next record, you all haven't heard yet. This is the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> right. Like, fine. Okay. I get it. But yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The next thing I'm going to make is probably going to be my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. By your own logic. Absolutely. And I hope right. so. Uh, cool. So another question uh, is, do you think you'll want to make more projects like What Wands? I have no idea what that is. Yeah. What Wands Won't Break was my last LP. Okay. And what and was different from that project than other LPs that this person thinks it's like a project that is like something? Yeah. So I read a book called Black Noise um, and the name of the author escapes me because I'm terrible with names. It'll come to me in my dreams later. <laughs> and it really esteems this idea that a lot of the technology we use, music technology, has been so influenced by basically white culture that it 
becomes this idea where a lot of yeah so for instance a lot of the mixing equipment we use was like exactly conditioned to be able to mix an orchestra like seemingly the in the order of hierarchies like orchestral music and especially the recording of orchestral music is this like uh of the certain audio quality this audio fidelity this like audiophile idea that that's like perfect and that everything else kind of resonates like for and against that and so things like induced digital distortion or like saturations or like kind of things that break and go into the red as being a technological feature that has been like trying to be written out versus like the real <laughs> world culture. Whereas like, right. if you think about music cultures around the world, like it's loud and noisy and cantankerous. And like, we've, we've decided that the recording hall with its lack of noise is like perfect. And it's, it's just right. all these like interesting ideas. <laughs> and especially this black noise uh, book really talked about hip hop culture in the nineties that DJs would like indeed slam it into the red just to get the bass to feel a certain way because that was what would work in like a block party situation or would work in a concert in a, in adornment to voices. And so you need this kind of this outcome. And so I made a record that was like leaning into that really heavy. If you ever get a chance to check any of the tracks, like I am sorry. I'll check and it out. I love, and this. it's also like super <laughs> slinky. It's like no melody. It's just rhythm. It's like 22 tracks of like rhythm, like rhythm hitting you in the head. And some of them have like little bits of melody or little feints of things, but it's like really the most, like the most different record I've done since maybe my very early work. And I love it. I love that this is still possible and I could actually surprise people, especially off the heels of like what is a fairly extensive group of ambient records I did for Brain Feeder um, to be able to like still surprise some people mm. and have it used in like break corsets and like noise musicians <laughs> were loving it. And then all my like true blue fans from like, you know, from the mid mid aughts and stuff were like angry at me. Cause it was like, <laughs> that came up in my shuffle and it was loud and it hurt me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but also like awesome. Like that's incredible. That's even possible. Yeah. I think people forget how much, uh, music technology actually influences us. Uh, like for instance, in a DAW, um, like the fader will be green or the, mm -hmm. the level meter will be green and then it will go red, right? And like this is driven into us from a young age with like traffic lights. It's like green means go, red means stop. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think people kind of immediately when they see that red are like, oh, I've heard before, you know, in other instances of life that are not artistic or musical, that, that red is not good. So like, let's not do that. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, why they even put that feature in there? If it's <laughs> It, absolutely and there's there's certain other aesthetic choices that i really do like like and i hate and i like it's like when i'm in a public space and someone's playing super loud music off their cell phone they're just blasting it it's like annoying me because it's it's interrupting my personal space it's like it's like my little bubble has been popped and like here they are inserting themselves and i just can't stand it and yet at the same time it's like wow what a crazy ego trip move to be like you were listening to my music now and it's important. And whereas maybe your, you know, your, your crutches, you could put your noise canceling in and like ignore me, but I'm going to be so like vibrant in the space that you can't stop. And of course it's a very dangerous prospect in many ways. Um, but then equally it's intoxicating to think about the possibility. Yeah. I'm not sure those people on the trains and buses who do that shit are actually thinking like you're listening to my music now. I think they're just completely not self-aware and like not thinking about the people around them at all. I like to think the best of people and right. uh, I want to think, think that they're, you know, like giving me insight into the, their secret world that they would normally feel that they would have to hide. So it's, and yeah, it's a good way to look at things. Of, of, uh, yeah. Giving me, as long as it's not for too, too long, then I feel better about it. Right. So, yeah. yeah. 
at least gives you something to think about if you're giving people the benefit of the doubt rather than just jumping to conclusions, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. Next question says, do you or what part do you instinctively start with? I guess they mean when writing a tune. Mm -hmm. uh, someone said they know that I've mentioned that I have many songwriting strategies, but where do you find your primary source of inspiration? Yeah, I do find oftentimes that a lot of my records are coalescing certain both like I have an overwhelming thought or impetus as well as technique that ends up being like the kind of thing that binds a whole record together. So sometimes that's an instrument. Some records are obviously like you can tell that I use a lot of guitar. I use a modified tuning. I do a lot of electronic techniques, but still it's like the guitar was like the center impetus of like the songwriting and it probably did start on a guitar or it probably really quickly got to a guitar and that's why it kind of came together as a record. And equally, like I have that for drum machines, I have that for pianos. I mean, I have a lot of records, so, but each record does seem to be like one exertion of an idea and a technique kind of that find each other. So, so oftentimes like I'll, I'll have like a new soft synth or I'll have a new hardware piece and it'll be like, maybe this is going to be record, maybe not. Like, I don't know. I don't buy it with the intention that like, oh, this thing is going to like be the thing that does it. But suddenly it will kind of appear like it'll start to happen and like ideas that maybe I've put into the into the back burner for a while will start to like foment and be like, Oh, this is going to be that thing. And suddenly it's just like, everything starts to happen really quickly. And that's the one thing about music making to me is I know when it happens fast and viscerally that it's good. Right. And not to say that the music's good, but like the act of creation feels good. Mm. And I feel like swept up in it. And so when it's hard and when it takes time and when it's like, even when the equipment is like really divey, like menu divey, I'm like, I'm turned off. Like, nah, nah, this isn't like, this isn't going to be my thing. And so I really appreciate people who have a technical controller aspect that allows them to like, you know, really figure out like, I'm going to have like 17 kicks that are interchangeable and I'm going to like figure out how to perfect them all. Like for me, it's just like blare, blam, and then maybe later I can do the replacement or figure things out and still, yeah. you know, try to get like really through composed, hopefully really deeply intricate pieces, but that like... In that incessant necessity is probably the most through thread of any of the techniques is that like, as long as it's happening and like the quickness, it's like, it's worth it no matter what the instrument is or our idea. That's interesting. Cause I mean, like we just talked about, uh, you look at the best of people on the train who blast their music. I look at the worst of them, <laughs> but in this case with challenging things, you know, we think the opposite way. Um, mm. you, you look at uh, a challenge as like, a, I'm probably not going to do that. And I look at something usually as like, if this is challenging me, that's a good trigger for my brain to know that this is important for me to do. Mm. That's awesome. Like something that's going to stretch me a little bit and something that's going to potentially lead me into new ground that I haven't been to before because it feels uncomfortable. I, and I, I don't think the discomfort is something to, to shy away from, but discomfort I think is a lot easier to get to than comfort. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I like to be in the discomfort. I like to be right away in the discomfort and just, just like live there. Um, but, and comfort feels weirdly like you have to be very preparatory, preparatory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I think right, we agree a little bit more than we disagree on that one, but maybe. Yeah, 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 yes, possibly. Yeah, usually <laughs> I, I kind of agree with you with menu divey shit. I kind of hate that, especially on modules, man. It's like, Jesus Christ, like some of the modules that, yeah, <laughs> yes. crazy, yeah. especially once once you get an SD card in the module, it's over, <sighs> menus <Yeah>. forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, right, somebody says, uh, how do you balance your personal and work life? It's increasingly hard, especially between child and work. I find that I have less and less time for the, um, the needfulness of, of our music making. Um, I, I am really deliberate now about my creative 
act and I will find any time that I can find that sliver, but I'm very deliberate when I'm in that moment to, to kind of really be about it. But um, with the needs of a child and the kind of constant aspect of the working world, like I don't just, you know, check out of work and like I'm done. Like there's like a, a barrage of emails or kind of, of sometimes papers or music to grade or these other things that just really cause it. So I've, I've kind of succumbed to having a much slower work regime and, and finding my muddled a little bit in, in that way. Like I've, I think I'm going to have a record up before the end of the year, but like this would be one of the first years. I don't have like a real strong EP LP that I can really stand on. I mean, I, I'm really proud of the work that will come out in November, but it's just different. It's not, it's not the same. Like I'm going to do a bunch of touring around it and I'm going to do, you know, like it's just going to be this thing that's carved out and maybe there'll be some outcomes from it, but maybe not. And I'll have some more music out too and some other remixes and stuff, but it's just different. It's different than having like this kind of solo meditation time that I can really just like figure it out. So I'm, I'm wonderfully struggling in the humanity of what's going on, but I think many, many people are, so I don't feel mm -hmm. that different. Whereas sometimes before in my musical life where I was just like, I would twiddle my thumbs for 12 hours a day, just thinking about music all the time. And I loved that, but I, it did make me feel sometimes like I'm having a very different experience than other people around me. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So you think like now that you have a child and stuff, you're going to lean more into, uh, staying as a teacher at Berkeley rather than going to back to touring once that I resumes. Th I think so. Partially just because I'm finding so much pleasure in, in giving some of these ideas and knowledge and just being there for that sense of discovery. Like, I don't even think necessarily I teach people things. I just like, am like a sounding board for their own discovery. Yeah, actually. And, yeah. And that's, and that's, it's an incredibly heady feeling. Like I think those people haven't experienced that before. And I hadn't that much prior to this moment being just present when somebody has a Eureka moment, even if it's something I've realized in the past or something that like, it's kind of intuitively like, Oh, this is kind of low hanging fruit or like, you know, a high concept or whatever, just being there when those like gears come together, it like feels like a flash of electricity in my veins. It's, mm. it's fun. I agree. Yeah. And it also, I think just, um, like I experienced the same thing when I was at Berkeley Valencia It's just people there were, um, yeah, just having, you could just like feel everybody thinking, I, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. um, the shared which, experience, the shared ideal, it really reminds me of shows where like people want to have a good time. They come to the show, having a good time you're on stage. And the only thing you can do is fuck it up for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you, I mean like they're going to have a good time kind of without with or without you as long as you don't mess up their flow. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing at school. It's like, everybody's like discovering, learning, making music. They're all on the same page. And the only thing you can do is just like, give them a bummer of a class and then <laughs> just don't do that. Right. And also, yeah, another thing I found being at that school is just because, you know, all these people were people who had finished already at Berkeley, Boston, and then came over to Valencia to do mm -hmm. the masters. Um, just fuck man. Some of the skill of the players there, it's like, man, I'm just getting musically dunked on by all these people. Like I, I they're like, I'm the one with the, the music career and like, there's no way that I'm like m more skilled than the only thing you have to remember though, that, teaching. that again, like just like with money, like money is a very short game and time is the long game quite by its own definition. And much the same way, like you've spent time doing this. And even if it hasn't resulted in these kind of demonstrable skills that you can kind of see in others, they just don't have that time that you have. Mm -hmm. And they never will. They never, as long as you stay in it, they never will catch up to you. Right. right. It's a weird thing to know. Yeah. Yeah. Experience does in a weird way trump uh, knowledge. But, but then again, it's like different people learn different things at different times. So it's kind of like, 
Yeah, I think. But that's yeah. the thing is though, they might have the knowledge, but they'll never have your experience. It, they're very different right. things. Yeah, that is true. All that right, doesn't mean that you're valuable late in life, but <laughs> we all will be disposable, hopefully. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Until we figure out the tricks of old aging or, you know, yeah. I think nootropics might play part of that. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know if I want to microdose for the rest of my life, but still. Right. Yeah. Or Neuralink, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. All right. Last question is uh, tea or coffee? Coffee all day, all okay. the time. I'm like so incredibly like I tour sometimes for music, but I tour for coffee is what I tour for. I love uh, the fact that I've been all over the world for all these different coffee cultures, all these different way that it's served, all this different way that it's prepared. I've had, um, yeah, coffee in places where coffee isn't served and coffee culture is like a, a, a ungainly energetic thing. Much of America is much like this. And I just, I adore that I adore the way that, that indeed like a hallucinogenic drug is now like completely mainstream and people are doing it constantly and adaptogenic, insanely powerful chemicals like put into our body like a million fold. It's controlling us. It's part of us. It's like, I, I yeah, I'm a big coffee person. I like tea too. Don't get me wrong. It's just not coffee and right. good coffee, especially as it's like created like from from farm to table to use that silly term is like an incredibly it's like one of the most aspirational things that that we have done as a humanity is like not just tamed this thing because really there's no taming it it's just like worked with it to create an environment that creates this this one outcome and it's, it takes so many like really diligent hands on a on on this this basically this very fallible product the very fa not even product this very fallible plant to, to get to us is just incredible especially when you have the sublime experience at the end of it of drinking a truly truly good cup totally yeah i remember one day actually seeing on your social media you had posted like a google maps link where you're like here's all the best coffees i've found in each city or whatever mm -hmm. um, i was having this conversation with my girlfriend last night who's been getting massively into new tropics mm -hmm. and she was saying that um tea holds like a lot more theanine than coffee yeah. and some people are really sensitive to theanine and have this really like positive experience with it mm -hmm. uh, and other people uh just do not and it's just very hit or miss so i think the people who are more into tea maybe just to those people who are more affected by theanine than than caffeine. well also we we do a lot to like destroy the delicate chemical compounds in tea like we we scald it all the time we do all kinds of things to to use wrong kinds of paper in terms of like it's both it's drying as well as it's like bagging and that kind of stuff will end up disrupting the kind of the pleasant like, you know, if we could all use gai gaiwan, I think is the kind of phrase for this, like, especially like tea. a Chinese style yeah, the, service. The like little cup thing. We... Little cup, but also the way that you kind of, you you boil steep and, and steep it, exactly. Multiple steeps and all these things. Like it actually is really an incredible way of receiving tea. And it really does change. Like if you ever have the chance to have like a, one of these like really high quality teas that you can have like five or six steepings of, it's like, mm -hmm. it's like going on this entire journey with the plant. It's incredible. Yeah, I have this giant brick of pu'er that I do mm. through a guy one quite often. There you um, go. This perfect. Yeah, <laughs> you know the thing, man. I just yeah, feel like the same thing's possible on coffee. It's just we have to be equally careful and diligent. Yeah, during this conversation with my girlfriend last night, she was saying that there was a pretty strong correlation between when caffeine got like heavily introduced uh, and when science started advancing a lot, it's like in the 1600s or whatever, people just started slamming coffee during the Renaissance era and just like <laughs> hammering they, out. Like. They've also found the same correlation between revolution as well. Like mm. 
you have more right. <laughs> uplift and and kind of disruption of society based on caffeine consumption too yeah it's true yeah everyone was getting a lot of work done but they were also having a lot more uh, energy to have arguments probably <laughs> maybe so maybe so well yeah. cool man um dude thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been an, an amazing chat i think this has been one of the more like conceptual like high level heady chats that i've had on this podcast which is awesome like usually i get more into the exactness of like you know <laughs> also what has your travel schedule been like lately and stuff like <laughs> that but i really uh, this podcast honestly like this is the perfect like this is what i want oh. this podcast more to be like as these very like heady conceptual ideas versus um just this kind of you know uh, talking about exactly what I've been up to lately and what, well, what the other person has been up to lately. I mean, to be quite quite frank, though, when I think about you, I think about you in these kind of conceptual standpoints. I think you are an artist that differentiates yourself because you're not just you're not just a song or a sound, but you're a person of nuance and some complication. And I appreciate being able to follow you through your journey on social media and also meeting you in person. And to be able to do this podcast has been great. I really appreciate it. And if anything, I mean, you should feel like I don't know, the topics you brought up and some of the ideas espoused, it's just fascinating. So I want hopefully more people to hear it and I'm excited to be taking part today and, and indeed following up as, these, as you post more shows. I appreciate it. Yeah, likewise, ma'am. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at Mr. Bill's tunes.com. Thank you. I know what I'm